Hello, everyone. Welcome to Denton's Canada Health Tech Podcast. Innovators at the intersection of healthcare and technology has never been more important. COVID-19 has significantly changed the ways in which we all interact as a global society. From businesses pivoting their operations in response to emerging needs, to healthcare professionals continuing to perform essential services in new ways. On this episode of the podcast, we are going to dive into the topic of telemedicine. What is it? What are the regulatory considerations? And how do you protect patient data? But before we begin, please note that the content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Please do reach out to your counsel for further guidance. Our Denton's Canada Health Tech Team is here to help you understand and navigate the unique legal and business challenges in the shifting regulatory and legislative landscape. I'm Rose Carter, and I have the privilege of leading the broader health law practice at Denton's Canada. I'm joined today by my esteemed colleagues across the country to provide you with a multi-jurisdictional perspective on telemedicine. Let's start out east with Dr. Philippe Couliard as Senior Business Advisor in our Montreal office. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I I practiced neurosurgery for 20 years before serving as Minister of Health and Social Services in Quebec from 2003 to 2008. In 2014, I became the 31st Premier of Quebec until I retired from politics in 2018. With my background in medicine, business, and public service, I help clients at Denton's manage complex and strategic issues at the national and international level. Over to Dina Awad, a senior associate in our Toronto office. Oh, thank you, Rose. Uh, Yes, uh, my litigation practice focuses largely on regulatory matters, uh, including health and privacy issues, helping healthcare institutions and physicians understand the issues they face, as well as other participants in the health sector. Thanks, Dina. And now I would like to turn the matter over to my fellow partner in our Edmonton office, Tom Sides. Yeah, thank you, Rose. I chair the National Technology Transactions Group at Denton's Canada, and my practice focus, focuses extensively on technology, intellectual property, privacy, and related commercial legal issues for clients across many industry and public sectors, including health, of course. For 10 plus years, I worked closely with Capital Health, which is now part of Alberta Health Services, on all of their principal technology, IP, and privacy projects. For example, I worked on the first integrated electronic health record project in North America, with its myriad of privacy law, data stewardship, professional responsibility, medical ethics, and other related legal issues. Thanks, Tom. Now let's jump into our discussion. In my 30 plus years of practicing health law, I have never seen a time like this. I am being continually approached by healthcare professionals such as physicians, nurse practitioners, as well as other healthcare professionals, including, for example, physiotherapists who want to provide health services to their patients at home during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are also companies eager to enter into the field and companies who have already been in the field wanting to expand their reach. Of course, these healthcare professionals would all like to make use of telehealth facilities to provide health services to their patients. Certainly, it appears that patients are embracing this form of interacting with their healthcare providers. We all see that health 
telemedicine or remote healthcare is taking a lot of importance in our healthcare system during COVID-19. Philippe, what is telemedicine and what are the advantages for patients? Well, telemedicine allows healthcare providers and patients to communicate remotely through their computer or mobile device for the provision of healthcare. It provides immediate, immediate access to healthcare professionals, including physicians, nurses, therapists, even mental health support and wellness advice. This is already available in Canada as part of group benefits. And certain healthcare organizations, for example, Kaiser in the US, have a longer, broader experience and have documented a very high degree of satisfaction among users. So the next logical step is to make this available for all Canadians. What are the advantages and challenges for the healthcare system? Telemedicine is part of what is needed in order to provide more efficient services and allows for better utilization of resources, for example, less visits to the emergency room, timely renewal of prescriptions, etc. It can be used in many sectors, including management of chronic illness and some mental health issues, and by many categories of providers. A large number of our interactions now do not actually need to be in person. Just think of obtaining your latest lab or three results or a prescription renewal. However, to be effective and responsive, remote care must be synchronous and include various platforms of technologies, video, email, or chat. This is one of the good responses to the main challenges of our healthcare system, which are access and coordination of care. One should not forget that increased access means a larger number of patient-provider interactions, therefore increased costs. But these can be offset through telemedicine by reducing the pressure on emergency rooms or clinics, in short, through a better, more appropriate utilization of our resources. We see then that the deployment of the technology, the, the adoption of the appropriate legislative framework need to be complemented by robust integrated health policy that includes, for example, standardized, updated, evidence-based protocols. A good example of this is Think Research, a fast-growing company from Ontario that provides such protocols in acute and long-term care institutions, as well as, as in retirement homes. It has recently added a virtual care solution allowing staff in long-term care to get in direct contact with physicians. Of course, Philippe, all healthcare professionals are regulated by colleges of physicians and surgeons. What uh, concerns, if any, about the use of telemedicine do they have? Well, most colleges in the country have started adapting their guidelines and regulations to the reality of telemedicine, and physicians want this adaptation to accelerate. The legal profession needs to be closely involved with the colleges, for example, to address issues of liability, ensure proper documentation and privacy of clinical interactions. Although not related directly to colleges, but rather to the CMA provincial branches or medical federations in Quebec, the issue of billing and compensation must be addressed as well. For example, in Quebec, the Minister of Health recently broadened the use of telemedicine through a decree related to public health emergency powers related to COVID-19, rather than through the usual legislation in health services. So no billing codes were introduced, physicians being asked to use their best judgment and the pre-existing traditional coding in view of the urgency of the situation. In Quebec, this issue will certainly need to be more formally addressed at a later stage, but other provinces such as British Columbia, Alberta and Ontario have moved faster, for example, by the provision of billing codes to physicians. Certainly, those provinces have bought into the need for uh, 
telemedicine to better serve the Canadian or their provincial patients. However, do you believe that there is generally government buy-in more broadly at the provincial level to the use of telemedicine? And can we expect other provincial governments to be more or less inclined to push for regulatory changes in the current environment to make such more readily available to Canadians? For a rules, governments respond to the population needs and demands, but always in the context of limited resources. Now we are in our COVID pandemic era, the door of telemedicine is now opening faster than ever. It will simply not be possible to close it or walk away from it. And this for a simple reason, once patients, providers will have experienced its benefits on a larger scale, they will want more and they will ask, why was this not made available before? One should expect that many legal or regulatory issues will be raised, for example, on privacy-related matters. I can tell you by experience from the Dossier Santé Québec, which is a province-wide EMR, or the Cabinet Santé, which allows access to one's lab or its results, that the legislative and regulatory process is long, complex, and rightly so, as one deals with fundamental issues of privacy and circulation of clinical information. This experience also taught me that citizens remain prudent and concerned even when clinical benefits seem clear. In order to access the Cabinet Santé, for example, one has to opt in and consent. And as of today, a relatively small number of Quebecers have done so, reminding us how sensitive these issues can be. Thanks, Philippe. Now, turning to our lawyer colleagues, how are you seeing regulatory and policy frameworks around telemedicine impacted during COVID-19? Dina, what about the province of Ontario? The Ontario Ministry of Health has uh, increased resources for telehealth and has actually approved new physician billing codes that will allow physicians to continue to provide routine health care services by video and telephone, uh, and including assessment of possible COVID symptoms. This will actually be the first time that telemedicine has been deployed to this large scale in Ontario. So we're really seeing practical effects right here in the province. The College of Physicians, which is the regulator governing physicians in the province of Ontario, has for its part encouraged physicians to consider adopting virtual care into their practice during the pandemic to help ensure access to care and to support the conservation of PPE, as we know that there has been a shortage of personal protective equipment in the province. And that way they can help to avoid increasing the risk of exposure to COVID by utilizing these resources. Of course, physicians should have to be careful that they can actually provide the care virtually that they would have otherwise provided in person before utilizing these resources. Thanks, Dina. Uh, Tom, what is the situation in Alberta? Well, thanks, Rose. Uh, just more generally, since about the mid-1990s, Alberta has been a national leader in the deployment of e-health technology to augment the health services provided by healthcare professionals including North America's first electronic health record, uh, the clinical health and EMR system used by physicians to integrate their clinic's patients' health information to Alberta, Alberta Health Services, EHR, which is called Medicare. Similar to what Nina had said about Ontario, Alberta Health has recently made uh, temporary amendments to the schedule of medical benefits and has added seven new billing codes to further support virtual care. It's important to note that in the use of virtual care, uh, telemedicine, the patient must initiate the communication and it cannot be a matter of a physician soliciting for that kind of service. 
AHS's virtual health uh, area is offering Zoom video conferencing to support virtual care encounters between AHS clinicians and their patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. This platform is accessible on most computers and mobile devices. The addition of Zoom to AHS's virtual health current tools extends access to patients' home. What about the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta? Dina had mentioned the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario. Well, not surprisingly, we have a College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta as well. Now, the college recommends the use of regulated virtual care platforms, which uh, which makes sense. And, and, and of course, what a regulated uh, virtual care platform means is that the tool itself meets privacy and security requirements that are already in use in Alberta with a valid privacy impact assessment. Now, should these platforms be unavailable, the use of unregulated virtual care tools are permitted during the pandemic if clinically merited. So obviously that would mean the physician would have to make the decision whether or not uh, that unregulated virtual care tool could be used. The CPSA has recently published its advice to the profession document on COVID-19 virtual care, which has guidelines for managing virtual consults during this pandemic. Is this trend towards increased use of technology just COVID-19 limited, or do you think it will be longer term? There is no reason, uh, in my view, why physicians and other health professionals cannot continue to use these tools after the pandemic to continue to deliver patient cares. As long as regulated health professionals can discharge their professional obligations using technology, and as long as the Ministry of Health uh, allows uh, uh, billing to be provided through certain codes using this technology, there's no reason why they cannot continue to do so after the pandemic is over. Much like the legal system, for example, which has somewhat been forced into the 21st century through the use of computer software, for things like court hearings through COVID, the healthcare system is expected to continue to use these tools to deliver better patient care. Healthcare providers can really see this as another tool in their arsenal to deliver patient care. As I alluded to earlier, I think the trend towards increased use of technology to assist medical practitioners has already been on a steady incline well before the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic. If nothing else, the pandemic has shone a bright light on the importance of telemedicine when conventional forms of treatment and communication have been unavailable to both practitioners and patients. An opportunity for us to consider to reinvigorate the economy as we look to reopen our economies is in the intersection of digital technology and health. There has been a lot of talk in Canada about virtual care and home health monitoring, but little has moved on that front till now. Canadian jurisdictions are beginning to move out of necessity on these technology platforms due to the pandemic. The opportunity is for us to use this momentum as one aspect of our economic recovery. What are the more granular legal requirements that must be complied with to enable healthcare professionals to provide healthcare services to patients uh, using telemedicine, which of course is very concerning not only to physicians, but to the general public. As Philippe mentioned, healthcare professionals must first comply with the requirements of their professional associations. Health is regulated provincially. The various provinces will have regulatory colleges of which these various professionals will be members and they have to comply with those standards. In Ontario, physicians, for instance, must comply with the College of Physicians and Surgeons practice standards. 
That college is clear that physicians, for example, in Ontario providing care virtually have to meet the same standard of care that would apply to an in-person visit. The CPSO, the College of Physicians, has a telemedicine policy and it's written extensively on this topic and has explained that while certain types of care cannot be provided virtually, certain care can and supporting access and minimizing the risk of exposure of the virus are very important factors to consider as physicians decide what care to provide virtually. Physicians have to exercise their judgment and ensure that the care is appropriate in the circumstances. Of course, it's also important to obtain informed consent before you treat patients using telemedicine. Physicians and other healthcare providers need to be careful that they meet privacy obligations. In Ontario, for example, that would fall under the Personal Health Information and Protection Act. The Personal Health Information Protection Act, PHIPAA, as we call it, really uh, provides a, an expectation for custodians, health, health information custodians, to develop and implement policies for sending and receiving personal health information electronically. Custodians have to implement technical, physical, and administrative safeguards to protect personal health information. And custodians have to notify their patients about this policy and obtain informed consent prior to communicating via methods that are not encrypted or any other electronic methods. With the rise of telemedicine, uh, professionals would be, would be good to verify and ensure that they're implementing those norms prior to using these various platforms. At the end of the day, uh, you are responsible for ensuring that whatever virtual services you're offering can be provided in a manner that protects patients' confidentiality and the security of personal health information. What about the question of jurisdiction, which arises when care is being provided virtually? Theoretically, when you're not in the same location as the person to whom you're providing care, that can span across provinces and territories. It's important to consider where the physician or the healthcare provider and the patients are located and where the service is being provided. When providing services through telemedicine, for example, it's important to consider whether you need special permission from a foreign jurisdiction if you are seen to be practicing medicine or providing care in that jurisdiction through the use of the technology. You must understand whatever guidelines apply in the various jurisdictions where care may span, whatever standards and legislation apply, and ensure that you are compliant with them. The physician must comply with licensing requirements of whatever jurisdiction they're deemed to be providing care. Are there certain technical requirements prescribed by health-related statutes for the use of telehealth facilities, given that there will be transmission of patient information over the internet? Yeah, thanks, Rose. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, first, uh, let me just start by saying it's the Health Information Act in Alberta that uh, governs the collection, use, and disclosure of health information in Alberta. I, I might note that it's a much shorter and concise and probably more practical name than the one they use in Ontario. But that's just a bit of a shot at my Ontario colleagues. So the, the Health Information Act, or HIA, requires custodians to protect the confidentiality and security of health information throughout the entire medical record life cycle, including during storage, but it does not prescribe the specific technological means by which this should be done. Custodians must take reasonable steps to maintain administrative, technical, and physical safeguards to protect health information. And, and for context and better understanding, the HIA defines custodians 
there, there's many of them, but it includes the Ministry of Alberta Health, Alberta Health Services, which is responsible for the provision of health services throughout the province, nursing homes, physicians. It's an extensive list, midwives, dentists, and, and probably Dina would concur that the list is, is similar, maybe not identical in Ontario. What are some of the technical safeguards? One of them is the implementation of access controls to ensure that affiliates, who are the people who would be assisting in the provision of health services and hospitals and clinics, uh, that those folks would only gain access to health information needed to do their jobs. Uh, second, and we, we hear this a lot in our everyday lives with respect to our use of the, uh, the implementation of uh, any service or use of any service, would be a strong password policy to ensure passwords cannot be guessed easily, that we should change our passwords regularly. There needs to be a, an audit trail that shows who has viewed and modified the health information, antivirus systems, firewalls are required, Encryption for data storage and transmission of the public networks is, is mandatory in Alberta. So it's important, of course, to encrypt sensitive emails, uh, which would be any email transmitting health information to patients. Finally, although there are other requirements, implement and regularly test data backup and business recovery plans. But all this is uh, all this to say it's not to worry. Not every physician or other custodian needs to be a technologically proficient data security expert. That is why the Health Information Act contemplated the Information Management Agreement. So in this case, custodians have the ability to enter into an agreement with an information manager to provide a number of health information management or technology services. Even though this contractual arrangement exists, it is still the custodian, so the doctor, for example, who would be responsible for the use of the technology with respect to how health information is used. So in this case, health information may be provided to these information managers without consent of the individual for the purposes authorized by the agreement. Who is the information manager? So who is the information manager? Well, they're, they're essentially technology companies for the most part. They're companies that process, store, retrieve, or dispose of health information and do such functions as stripping, encoding, or otherwise transforming individually identifying health information to create non-identifying health information. And they can provide just general information management, information technology services. Now, as the third prong of this, under our HIA, custodians must submit privacy impact assessments to the Information and Privacy Commissioner before implementing practices or information systems that will collect, use, or disclose individually identifying health information. This includes changes to existing practices or information systems. So one cannot be static with respect to this requirement as there are changes that impact how health information is collected, used, or disclosed. Those particular practices, policies would need to be updated. So the purpose of this uh, PIA, as the acronym it exists, is to demonstrate due diligence in identifying and addressing privacy and security risks within the custodian's context which include foreseeable security risks, likelihood of loss or damage, the seriousness of the potential harm, and the reasonable, although not exhaustive, measures to address these risks. I know with the introduction of any new technology into a clinic setting, it is necessary to update the clinic EIA. However, in times of emergency, such as during this pandemic, it is necessary to approach compliance obligations in a way that does not increase the risk of exposure to COVID-19. 
and the urgent and changing situations that physicians and patients are currently operating in, physicians should focus on adopting virtual care solutions that are safe for their patients while continuing to be aware of and mitigate the risk of exchanging detailed patient information on unsecured platforms. On March 19, 2020, the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Alberta issued a notice regarding the submission of a PIA during a public health emergency. The notice stated that the Commissioner has no authority under the Health Information Act to relax custodians' requirements to submit a PIA. However, recognizing the need to quickly implement virtual care solutions during this pandemic as an interim measure only, custodians can notify the Commissioner by email to meet the PIA requirements. Turning to Ontario, is a Privacy Impact Assessment, or the PIA, required for health professionals to provide health services to patients online? The situation is a little bit different in Ontario than in Alberta in that privacy impact assessments are not actually formally required uh, under PHIPAA unless an organization is classified as what we call, quote, a health information network provider, close quote. So what's a health information network provider? It's defined as a person, which includes organizations, who provides services to two or more health information custodians where the services are provided primarily to health information custodians to enable them to use electronic means to disclose personal health information to one another, whether or not the person is an agent of any of the custodians. So an example of a health information network provider uh, under PHIPAA would be the Ontario Smart Systems for Health Agency, which is an electronic means of transmitting personal health information for that very purpose to, um, to provide care. So privacy impact assessment is required uh, for health information network providers. It is not required for others, but it is considered to be a best practice. What is a privacy impact assessment? It's essentially a detailed assessment that's undertaken to verify um, any actual or potential effects that the proposed project will have on the privacy of those whose personal health information is included in the proposed project. Proposed project could be the use of telemedicine or the use of video conference capabilities to deliver medicine. A privacy impact assessment also identifies ways in which privacy risks can be mitigated, which is a really important element. And a privacy impact assessment can be used to ensure alignment with best practice principles such as privacy by design, which is a very important principle to ensure that health information is, remains private uh, as, a, as a first step. As I mentioned, uh, there's no requirement for a mandatory privacy impact assessment prior to using a new technology to provide health care. However, if, if one is to be provided as a best practice, uh, that may be relied upon in the future if there's ever a regulatory investigation or if the Information and Privacy Commissioner reviews uh, a, a certain use of a, of a means of transmission or reviews how healthcare has been provided. If there's ever any regulatory issues, a privacy impact assessment that's voluntarily done can be looked to as a starting point for any investigation into a privacy breach. So putting on my litigator hat, just from a litigation perspective, it's very important to approach these carefully. They're very important, best practice. We have to make sure that we are adhering to privacy by design. But if you are going to do it, do it under the guidance of counsel. And that's just my little suggestion, having seen when regulatory investigations 
can be can be um, quite worrisome for clients to make sure that privacy impact assessments are being done properly and they're being done to support that best practice. You bring up a great point. As we have seen, this has been a rapidly developing area on a regulatory front. What type of litigation risk do you see that we should be looking for going forward? With any developing, rapidly developing area, there is lots of opportunity, but opportunity also does tend to come with risk, and the health tech area is no different. So there's two areas where I see um, particular caution being warranted. The first is in the area of data. Data is inherently valuable, particularly now when we've got all kinds of applications in AI, which essentially become better and get better at what they're doing through the use of data. This means that whenever you are a health professional uh, entering into a user agreement, or even if you are the provider of the technology through which data is going to be exchanged, and that includes through the use of software for telemedicine, make sure that ownership and use of that data is clear at the outset. Make sure that that ownership and use is in compliance with the various privacy legislation that govern you. Make sure there's informed consent because the last thing you want is litigation risk around the improper use of data or uh, around monetizing data when there hasn't been informed consent. There's great risk of class actions, for example, in that area. A second area that's important to keep in mind, especially for uh, tech companies or companies that are getting into the uh, tech application space, is to make sure that whatever your health tool um, is providing for consumers that it's not impermissibly engaging in what we call a controlled act. The various provinces, the various regulatory colleges reserve what we call controlled acts to be conducted by members of the various colleges. So you have to be a physician to diagnose. You have to be uh, an optometrist to dispense contact lenses. These are what we call controlled acts in Ontario under the Regulated Health Professions Act where your app starts to infringe upon that and starts to be seen as uh, engaging and what could be themed as a controlled act, you can expect a real risk of uh, litigation from various regulatory bodies and regula regulated health colleges, essentially uh, seeking to have you stop engaging impermissibly in such an act, which can only be done by a regulated health professional. Thanks, Dina. Tom, what are your thoughts regarding the risks we should be looking at? So maybe what I might do is take a bit of a different tack and I don't mean to uh, be invading the leaps area when I say this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, I would say, and it's not really in the legal area as such, that perhaps one of the greater risks is not moving quickly enough to fully embrace telehealth technologies and measures to ensure that vulnerable populations like seniors in nursing homes and citizens living in remote communities will have access to needed health resources. At the same time, we cannot be unmindful of the fact that some isolated First Nations communities, for example, and in this one example, lack running water and proper sanitation. And so having access to a computer, let alone reliable internet connectivity, cannot be assumed. So that, that's a, a large societal risk. It's great to have telemedicine but if you don't have the ability to participate in it, then that's a segment of our population. In fact, is not going to be properly served. Thanks, Tom. As we close this podcast, what do the three of you see as being next on the horizon? Philippe? 
Uh, well, first, I agree completely with what uh, Tom just said. Uh, I think there's a high level of uncertainty, and uh, most people would agree that governments have not been moving fast enough uh, in many areas. This one. We know that telemedicine exists already in Canada for remote populations through group benefits provided by an employer, or in some provinces when the necessary legal or administrative framework exists. So clearly not for all Canadians. In organizations that have embraced it and have had enough time to develop and evaluate it, a significant proportion of clinical interactions are now remote, and as indicated before, patient and provider satisfaction is very, very high. The same will happen in Canada. It was and it is only a question of time. COVID-19 has opened a new era in health policy that will include a much broader, equitable access to telemedicine. During this podcast, we have heard that the clinical needs of legislation, regulation, and health policy must be coherent. So a firm offering advice to organizations involved must include each of these aspects in its services. I absolutely agree with uh, with what Philippe uh, just said. I would I would just say that to remember to everybody out there that telemedicine is still medicine, and so uh, it should only be offered if appropriate. Uh, and all practice considerations that apply in real life will be uh, applied to the health tech world. So uh, if uh, a physician or a health practitioner is branching out into this area, they should consider uh, consulting with a legal team proficient in technology, privacy, and health law to make sure that they're, uh, they're um, in compliance with all the relevant regulations. Uh, good comments. I would just say this, that again, there's the negative of pan- the pandemic, of course, that we're all fully aware of. As I mentioned earlier, the, the fact that uh, light is being shone on telemedicine in terms of its ability to help people that otherwise could not be helped, I think is quite important. And and of course, we've discussed the regulatory risks that exist with respect to telemedicine. And so trying to end on a positive, just the economic opportunity that I think exists in the area for many companies, individuals, uh, practitioners, health practitioners to fill the void and ensure that uh, we are really uh, robust in terms of what we're doing to make telemedicine something that's not just necessary during the pandemic, but uh, necessary to help vulnerable populations, isolated populations, Canada, so that uh, you know, we don't have to uh, be dealing with those kinds of medical issues that otherwise exist in those uh, communities. And, and that's it, Rose, thank you. Thank you, that's a great point to end on. Philippe, Dina, and Tom, thank you very much for sharing with us your expertise. To the audience, thank you for joining us. We encourage you to reach out with your questions to any of us or any member of the Dentons Canada Health Tech team. We wish you and your family good health.